Dear God, we gather here on your day on the Sabbath um, to really just worship you. It seems that every day um, so many things are just happening around the world around us. Um, but God, we know that you are in control through the midst of this all. God, in this time, just really allow us to focus and seek your word and seek you. Um, we know that you are God and you are good. We know your goodness. Um, just give us hearts to understand and ears to listen, that we may hear your word being spoken through Pastor Pete, just your truth. Um, just nourish us and enrich us in what we need most in this time, God. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Uh, so good to, again, have you with us as we gather this morning uh, to worship. Um, if you have your Bibles with you and you're about to use them, then go ahead and open up to Judges. Uh, we'll jump into it in a second here, but just wanted to give you a chance to open it up. It's the book right after Joshua, and we've been in Joshua for a while, so it should be familiar to you. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 2. Uh, we'll read it in a little bit here, uh, but again, just to kind of give you a primer. Um, and if you've been with us for a while, we just finished the entire book of Joshua. We've been in there since the beginning of the year. And having finished Joshua, we wanted to kind of go into uh, a deep kind of a month-long uh, deep dive into the book of Ruth. Um, it's just, it's really, it's a small little tiny book there, uh, stuck in between uh, Judges and um, for Samuel, but a really important one. But before we do that, uh, Pastor Goose and I, we felt like it was really helpful for all of us to take a quick little pit stop, a flyby overview uh, of the book of Judges, kind of like if you're in an airplane and you kind of fly over a city, you can kind of see it maybe a little bit, hopefully a little bit more in depth than that. Uh, but we just want to do a quick little flyby. Um, and the reason we wanted to do this is because the book of Ruth takes place, the whole story takes place in the time of the Judges. Right? So you can kind of think of it like a spin-off, like a side story within the book or a story within a story, uh, which means that if we understand the book of Judges kind of as an overview, then we should understand Ruth and what's kind of happening. Right? It gives a perspective, context, uh, and that sort of thing. And then also we want to take a look at Judges real quick because the book of Judges is just, it's fascinating. It's like if you ever thought the Bible was boring, you should read the book of Judges. Um, and also because, of course, Judges comes right after the book of Joshua. So I think it's going to be helpful for us uh, to do so. So anyway, let's do this and just jump right in. Uh, as an overview, uh, thankfully, um, the book provides a summary for us in Judges chapter 2. So we're going to read um, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. As always, the words will be on the screen. Um, and I will be reading them in the NASB, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Now the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I said also, I will, not drive out them, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and, the gods, and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to Yahweh. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of Yahweh, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, the north of Mount Gash. All the generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel." Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked Yahweh to anger. So they forsook Yahweh and served Baal and Ashtaroth. The anger of Yahweh burned against Israel and he gave them to the hands of the plunderers 
who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went, the hand of Yahweh was against them for evil as Yahweh had spoken and as Yahweh had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Then Yahweh raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of Yahweh. They did not do as their fathers. When Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And so the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I will also no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of Yahweh or walk in, or to walk in their, uh, as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, we're going to basically do a quick little thing, a brief overview, and then kind of three lessons uh, we learn. And so let's just kind of jump right in uh, really quickly. And uh, sorry for those on the live stream. Uh, Chris, could you turn these speakers out away from me. They're creating a lot of weird apologies, technical difficulties. This one too, sir. Thank you. Um, so let's just jump right in. We'll do a brief overview, uh, a flyby, and then we'll kind of do three lessons that we learn. First, a brief overview. Right after Joshua dies, Israel finds itself in a very interesting situation, okay? They are for the first time without a clear leader, right? Because Joshua has died and they don't have one guy like a Moses or a Joshua and so on and so forth. Secondly, they realized that although they, they had taken Canaan, right, there were still some villages that they hadn't taken. And that though God had told them to drive out all the Canaanites in certain places, there were still Canaanites living amongst the Israelites. And then the third thing that they realized was a new generation had arisen, right? The old generation had died and a new generation was there. One that did not know Yahweh, and maybe more importantly, didn't or hadn't seen what Yahweh had done for Israel. Much like when Joshua was leading Israel across the Jordan, right? Where everyone there hadn't actually been rescued out of Egypt and hadn't gone to the Red Sea. Much like that, a whole new generation that had never seen with their own eyes, had never witnessed what God had done for Israel to get them to this place, all the conquesting in Jericho and all those things, a new generation had arose that did not know. And this is really significant because as soon as Joshua and his generation dies, Israel does evil. They turn their back on Yahweh and they play the harlot. Or as the ESV says, they hoard after other gods. If you remember from last week, this is the very thing that Joshua warns them and tells them to avoid. He says, choose Yahweh, put away the other gods. Because this will happen if you don't. And as soon as he and his generation, the elders that survived Joshua, died, the old guard has gone. They do exactly what Joshua told them he would do, they would do, and warn them not to do. Remember, we mentioned last week, if you were here, that in Joshua's commands, right, to choose Yahweh, the thing that he kept saying was put away the other gods, put away the other gods. And we mentioned how they specifically would not say that they would do so. Now look at what happens at the end of Joshua 24, 31, and then Judges 2, 7. You realize there's very specific and similar statements. And they read this, Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua had known of the deed of Yahweh, which he had done for Israel. Even the author of Joshua and here in Judges, they know that the moment Joshua and all of his elders die, that it's all going to be over. Joshua's generation was the last one that was going to actually remember because they had seen with their own eyes what God had done. But after that, forget about it. They hadn't seen Therefore, maybe they don't believe or they don't care. It's almost as if the next generation would look at the older generation and be like, yeah, I know you keep saying Yahweh did this and Yahweh that, but I didn't see it. So how do I know that it's real? I mean, it sounds good that God did all those things, 
but I didn't see it and I didn't taste it and therefore I can't trust it. It's a lot of like, uh, for those of you, um, for if you're immigrants and your parents, uh, they tell you stories of way back yonder in Korea and you're like, nah, that can't be true. <laughs> that can't actually be true. And some of those things are actually not true. Um, and I won't go into the myths that we've all grown up with, but some of them are actually true. It's kind of like that. And so understandably, Yahweh's wrath, his anger, burns against Israel. And he decides to no longer keep winning for Israel. He no longer continually drives out the enemies, defeating them out and making sure that Israel is still Israel. And you have to understand at this point, they still have lots of enemies. I mean, you don't just conquer an enemy nation and then not have enemies. And again, we mentioned they didn't destroy all of Canaan. It's unrealistic, in my opinion, to expect that the Canaanites who were left would all of a sudden just be so happy that they were allowed to live. I'm sure there were people there who wanted revenge. You destroy my people and take my land and you let me live? Oh, payback is a coming. I'm sure they were thinking. And so it says that God, Yahweh, does not drive them out But Israel turns their back on Yahweh. They bow down to the foreign gods, become captive to them. And then, of course, because they're being oppressed and afflicted, then Israel cries out to God as they should because they're suffering. And then Yahweh hears them, is moved to pity, and then raises up judges to deliver them from their enemies, rescuing them by whatever means necessary. Until then, of course, as we read in verse 19, that when the judge dies, Israel turns immediately back acting more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods. Israel goes right back to square one, beginning the cycle all over again. Yahweh's wrath, he doesn't drive out the people. Israel goes captive, is afflicted, is oppressed. They cry out because they're being afflicted. God has moved, raise up a judge. He delivers them, then the judge dies and Israel turns back and so on and so on. They do this 12 times in the book, 12 cycles of this mess. 12 times they turn their back on Yahweh, 12 times they're captured and afflicted, 12 times they cry out, 12 times God raises judges, and 12 times they turn their back, again, or 11 times, I guess I should say, like over and over and over, all until Israel finally gets a king in 1 Samuel, the first king being King Saul, and then the rest. That's kind of the book as a whole. It's a fascinating story. And we're going to jump into the book of Ruth, which happens kind of in the midst of all of this, this time period when Israel is without a king and this is going on. So the three takeaways as we jump right in, okay? And disclaimer, there's obviously so much more than three takeaways that you'll see, but these I thought were the most important ones. And so again, we'll kind of do a flyby and do the three biggest or overarching takeaways. And they're first, don't play with fire. Second, we need a savior. And then third, the one, the king. Just jump right in and go right into it. First, don't play with fire. There's three things that we learn about this. And if you've been here through Joshua, you know that this, you've heard this over and over and over again. And this is kind of the last time we'll probably talk about how serious sin is. But first we learn that you shouldn't play with fire because sin is unfathomably dangerous. See, the last verse of Judges 21, right, sums up the problem of the entire book. And he says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. The author is saying, In these days there's no king, therefore there's no standard. There's no one that sets the right course for living. There's no one that sets all the laws that is clear throughout the land. And because of this, everyone did as they wanted to do, to each to his or her own, essentially. And what the author is doing, and you'll see this phrase throughout the book of Judges if you read it, three or four times at least, right? And what the, judge, what the author is doing is basically telling us what sin is and the problem that it causes. And throughout Judges, you recognize that sin is this idea that I summarize here for you. That sin is this idea that I am my own king. I am my own person. I don't need God. I don't need a king. I don't need a standard. I can manage just fine on my own. I can and I will, therefore, run my own life however it is I think I know best. I define right and wrong. No one knows better than me because I know best. That's kind of like what sin is. In the New Testament, we call this idea of the flesh, right? This idea that you think you can live apart from God and without him. And as you can probably tell by this definition, that this is really problematic. 
because if any two people disagree, you won't ever be able to determine who is actually right or wrong because this idea is I'm right and I know. Whatever is right in my own world is indeed the thing. So who knows better than me? And if, I, if no one knows better than me, then how am I ever wrong? To settle a disagreement between two people, it's like, yeah, I am right, but which I is the more right one in essence? You can't ever determine that with this idea. And this attitude, this sin, is therefore the issue that causes everything that happens in the book of Judges. And to be absolutely clear, this book and what happens within this book is so over the top. Like if they were ever to make a movie out of this book, they wouldn't be able to release it, at least if they didn't edit it. Like if they didn't censor a good portion of it, they would not be able to make this book into a movie and actually release it into the public because of how graphic it is, how violent, how utterly debased it is. It's like think Game of Thrones or worse, like for real. Of course, when I was trying to figure out how to illustrate judges, I saw this online and someone had made that. That's kind of the feel that you get. If you don't know what that is, um, good for you, actually. It's better that you probably don't know. When the author tells you that the next generation was more corrupt than the previous, they are not lying. This book, you see how ugly dangerous, wicked, and disgusting sin is. And judges, this book shows it to us, no hold barred. Like if you really wanted an exciting book to read in the Bible, this is probably the one. And if you don't believe me that the judges is, judges is this way, just go read chapters 19 and 20. And if you're under the age of 17, read those chapters with your parents. Like I'm, I'm serious. I would not let my kids just read that by themselves. Sin is unfathomably dangerous. And the second thing we learn about sin and the reason why you don't play with fire is because sin is unbelievably resilient. See, it's interesting that Israel never quite learns from their lesson, do they? Like 12 judges and 12 cycles of this, as we talked about earlier, and they don't learn a thing. Maybe your parents taught you this. My parents were always taught this and I teach this to my kids. It's okay if you make a mistake. Just learn from it and don't repeat them. That's the idea, right? Like mistakes are okay. Honest mistakes are good, but don't repeat them, right? Like for the young drivers, we'll say like, don't be distracted on the road. And maybe you get distracted and maybe you get into an accident or something. We'll be like, oh, you know, it's unfortunate, yada, yada, yada. Thankfully, you're not hurt. But they'll tell you, just don't do it again. And that's the idea. As long as you don't repeat your mistakes, you're good. But clearly, Israel does not get this memo. Because as we learned, each passing generation, not only does Israel repeat the cycle, but they do it worse than the previous one. Faith, wisdom, and knowledge and obedience, it dies with their fathers and their mothers and the older generation. Sin has a way of sticking around. We saw this in the book of Joshua as well. It just doesn't go away very quickly or easily. I think clearly this is a word of warning to the parents out there, myself, Pastor Goose, right? That generational sin is actually real. And our young ones, our children, do indeed learn so much from us. And maybe the thing that we need to recognize is maybe what they learn best or easiest is not our good, but our bad. Like how easy is it to do, get kids to do selfish and stupid things? <laughs> you don't even teach them that, but you spend days weeks, months trying to teach them good habits and it just doesn't stick sometimes, does it? See, if we think that God is just going to miraculously cover up for our mistakes as the older generation, we got another thing coming. We need to teach, guide, show, and example the next generation to live deeper into their faith and obedience. And that's what I'm learning from this. I think oftentimes we want our generations, the younger ones, to be just like us or to live up to our standard. And I think that's wrong. I think we need to have them go deeper than we ever did. Every generation, they need to go deeper into an understanding, right? Draw into, learn from our mistakes. We need to teach them so they don't repeat them, but also to draw deeper and deeper and deeper. I've said it in here many times, and this is an unfortunate word to a lot of the parents. And again, it's a wake-up call to myself and Pastor Goose and all the many parents that we have here. But oftentimes we find that parents are most likely complicit in the failures of the next generation. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but when it comes to their academics and their athletics or their extracurriculars or whatever, we will do anything and everything to get them to there. We'll wake up at the crack of dawn to get them to their practice. We'll drive 
30, 40 minutes, an hour to get them to their private tutor or whatever the case might be. We'll do anything. No matter the time or the day, we'll get them there. Sundays, it doesn't matter. You got to meet or you got to match. You got a game. You got to whatever, go. But when it comes to church, we'll show up late. Maybe we won't even go. I'm tired. Oh, it's okay. After all this, this pandemic is done, maybe we'll have the idea. Be like, it's okay. We don't have to go. They're going to stream it. Where do you think they will learn the attitude that maybe not going to church every single weekend or not gathering or doing these things? Where do you think they get that from? Sin is resilient. It sticks around. And then the third thing we see, and the reason why we don't play with fire is because sin is incredibly familiar. See, the issue with Israel during this period is that God has designed and promised and desired for Israel to live as just Israel, God's people and nobody else. And again, we've gone over why this is the case, right? But they lived with other peoples. They did not put away other God. And as a result, they find themselves in a pluralistic society, right? Where to each is to our own. That whatever floats your boat, there's no absolute truth, no king. And everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes. If you don't know what a pluralistic society, it's basically this idea that anyone can believe anything. There's no one thing, right? All these different rights, all these different absolutes, therefore no absolutes, anything kind of flies. And if you think about the world we live in, isn't this our world? Everyone is entitled to their beliefs. You do you, and I'll do me. And anyone who tries to tell me or tell someone that they ought to believe something because it's better, or they say, you know what, this is actually right or wrong, will be considered a bigot, will be considered closed-minded, We live in a world where as long as you don't bother my bubble, I'm good. You can kind of do what you want, but don't bother me, essentially, right? And as such, what we find ourselves doing is we assimilate. We take from here. We take from there. And in the midst of the never-ending idols that we all have, and I don't have the time to name them all. We've done that before all we end up doing is taking from all the different idols of the world and everywhere else. And then eventually what we do is we turn to them and follow them. We get the pick of all the ones that we want and we pick the ones that are most relevant, most beneficial, most convenient, etc., etc. If you're Korean American, we know how this is. Or if you're an Asian American, we know how this works. I always tell all of the Korean American people that you're neither Korean nor you're American. You're not actually fully American, and we know that here. Unfortunately, if you've been in the live in the pandemic, we all know that uh, racism towards Asian Americans have grown, has risen because of this pandemic. But if you've ever gone back to your motherland, Korea, wherever that may be, you know that you don't fit in actually either. You don't look everything like them. doesn't matter how good your Korean is. They'll know that you are not from there. You don't fully fit in either way. We're some sort of hybrid, which is why I always tell every Korean American, you know that you're just like some sort of morphing thing that, you know, you just go wherever you go, you choose whatever you want to be. You pick and choose whenever it's convenient to be Korean or when it's convenient to be American. There's so many examples of this. The classic one, and I'll say, maybe this is not a good example, but it's the one that came to my mind, is when someone asks you where you're from, you're like, I'm from Texas. And they go, no, 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 where are you really from? And if you're a belligerent person like me, I'd be like, I'm from Texas. And then, you know, you start to get... But you know what they're trying to ask? They're saying, no, no, what, what country? And you're like, nah, I'm from Texas, bro. Like, I'm born and raised here. What y'all mean? But, but, the moment a telemarketer calls and you pick up the phone by accident, don't tell me you didn't. And you weren't tempted to be like, oh, no, no speak English. No, sorry, wrong number. Pick and choose whatever it is that you want, whatever is most relevant, whatever is most convenient to you. Sometimes you love the fact that your parents are Korean because of all the food and the amazing things that you get, but you hate it when they're so close-minded or they don't let you do the things that your friends are doing. But then sometimes your friends invite you to things and you don't want to go, and the first excuse would be like, oh, my parents won't let me go. You know how they are. Asian-American parents are strict. They won't ever let you go anything. That's kind of how it is. It's striking how much we resemble this Israel throughout the book of Judges in the world that we live in. I think it's clearly why Jesus says, wide is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. It's small for a reason. I know you're probably like, why is it so small? He's trying to tell us that the narrow way isn't some sort of secret path. 
Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many, many people find it, but narrow is the way that leads to life, and a very few find it. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that the narrow way isn't some sort of secret path off like in Narnia somewhere, like way over there. No, 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 the secret path, the narrow path is actually right smack in the middle of the wide path. It's just going in the opposite direction. If the, the illustration is confusing to you, the wrong way, right, or sorry, the wide way is going this way, or, I, I, yeah, oh, this way. And the narrow way that leads to life is in smack in the middle. It's the middle lane, right? It's the middle line and it's going in the opposite direction. They're not some sort of separate path. It's the same path, just going in opposite direction, which means that if our lives, our daily doings, our daily thinkings, our daily sayings, our dreams, our hopes, how we present ourselves, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, all of it, if it looks like just like everybody else and the majority of how the world lives, then which way are you on? God has a way. He is the way. His way is the life and the truth. You're either living by that or you're not. It's the world we live in, and this is exactly the world that Israel was living in. And again, it's striking if you read the book, just the things that Israel does. Don't play with fire. Because as they say, you will get burned. So that's takeaway number one. And the second takeaway is we need a savior. In a time period where there's no king, God continually raises up judges, these kind of military leaders in some ways, right? These leaders to rescue Israel and help them from their idolatry. Now, to be sure, these judges are very, very helpful. But just as clearly sure, they are not the ultimate answer or solution, are they? And if you think about it, it's really sad, actually, in the book. Because they waited so long from Abraham and the promise and they finally get the promised land and they have to go to all these lengths. God has to do all these things for them to get the promised land. And as soon as they get it and Joshua dies, which is very soon after, and all the elders that dies right after, as soon as that happens, literally, not a very long time, they go right back into this cycle of captivity, affliction, idolatry. I mean, it's really disheartening when you read the book. To prepare for this, I read through the entire book of Judges in one sitting just to kind of see, right? I wanted to see what I would feel and what I would see, what I would hear just in doing so. And you read throughout the book. I challenge you this week, maybe spend some time doing so. Just read through the whole thing. If you want, you can read through the message version. It flows a lot better. But if you read through the whole thing, you find yourself thinking some of these things. Like you think, when is this ever going to end? Or when will they learn? Or, ooh, maybe this time, maybe just this time, maybe it'll stick or you go, oh, maybe, maybe just let this judge be the one. All these thoughts are ruminating in your head. At least they didn't mind as I was reading it. Like, when are they going to learn? But all along, you feel and you get the sense that these judges, though they're really good and faithful, they just aren't it. They're not the one. Now, a little side note. If you ever wondered if God can use flawed and sinful people to do his will and do good and amazing things, clearly he can. Because the judges, I mean, Samson, hello. <laughs> Gideon, hello. Not the best, right? But God clearly uses them, which means he can clearly use all of us. So this is not a way to say you have to be perfect. No, no, no. But we clearly understand that they're not the one. And again, you ask yourself throughout the entire thing, why don't they work why doesn't one of them bring about the peace that we're all seeking? Because again, you read the book and you're like, again and again and again. And in truth, the book is set up so that you know that what Israel needs is a king. But even when they get a king in Saul, and even David, the best or the greatest king Israel had ever known, it still isn't it. They aren't the one and so as I was looking through the book, it made me think like, what? wait, what's the issue here? What's the problem? Why don't any of these judges work? Why don't any of these kings work? And it made me think like, what's their problem? What's their issue? And as I looked, even with Joshua, what is Moses and Abraham and everyone? And I looked, the issue is that every single one of them died. At some point, they die. 
The pattern is this. As long as they're alive, generally things are good. People follow. God speaks through them. And then God, and then people listen. And they're able to kind of be in this one framework. And everything goes fairly well. But as we've seen again and again and again, the moment that they die, what happens? Everything falls apart. Which means that death is ultimately the issue. Leaders, kings, whoever, only really have as much influence as long as they're alive. But once they're dead, hmm. If you have grandparents, again, for us Asian Americans or just immigrants in general, if you have grandparents, you know that one thing that they fear is that the moment they die and maybe your parents' generation die, their culture is going to die along with you, no? As Korean Americans, that's the one thing that I know that a lot of our grandparents are fearing. Like, what happens to Korean American churches? Will Will there be a single Korean American church on the face of the planet, maybe, that actually eats soup and rice after church? When we stop doing that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry. I'm just going to be dead honest with you. Will people actually eat any of the tra- tra- uh, traditional Korean foods? And I'm not talking Korean barbecue where you go out and you cook like, you know, bulgogi or whatever, whatever these things. No, no, no I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, the, the fermented, like, chokgal. If you don't know what that is, the Korean is if you basically take, like, squid and, like, shrimp, like, little miniature shrimp and, like, you know, oysters and all this stuff, and you, like, package them in, like, you know, spices, and then they basically ferment, a.k.a. rot, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Like, will anyone eat that? Will anyone eat Sea squirt. These side dishes that nobody likes or that one soup. Oh man, I forgot the name of it. But the one soup that takes a dried fish and you know you cook it in the dried fish with the egg. Will anyone eat that after our parents and generation die? Again, as long as they're alive, we'll eat it. As long as they're alive, a lot of times we'll eat the soups that they have. The least favorite one, I'm just going to be dead honest with you, is, is the cabbage, uh, um, what's it called? Tenjang. What's tenjang? Uh, soybean, uh, you know, fermented soybean soup. Like that's our least favorite one. Will anyone eat that? Because, you know, they don't sell that at restaurants. <laughs> After they die, everything is free game. Maybe one of the reasons why some of you still have cream food at Thanksgiving is because there's this fear that that will die once they die. Leadership, obedience, contracts all break basically with death. Death is the final end, the final breaker. You see it in movies all the time. People be like, I don't need to keep that promise. Why? Because my father made that promise to you, not me. I'm, not, I'm done with that. That was his stupid mistake. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. That's why a lot of these restaurants that are generation after generation of the same thing, and they're doing the same thing since like 19, whatever, they're lauded. Why? Because nothing has ever changed because the newer folks didn't, you know, throw away the older ways that indeed kept the tradition alive. So this throughout the entire book, right, you feel this need For one king, a leader, someone who's going to unite everyone and make everything good. But again, not just any leader. The judges are great, but not just the judge. And not even King Saul, right? But not even King David. Someone, the one. Someone who would do just more than rescue as the judges do. Someone who doesn't just live well and then die someday. Someone different. And throughout the entire book, what you feel is that you need someone not just to rescue, not just to get rid of some enemies, right, or make a military battle or whatever. You know and you feel this need to have someone who saves. You need a savior, someone who brings salvation. One that just doesn't last until someone dies. But something different. And it leads us to the third takeaway of the book. Is that what they're looking for is the one or the king. Now, a lot of churches do not preach the book of Judges. I hope one day we'll get to do so because I really enjoy this book. Maybe that's just kind of the way that I am. I like exciting things, but the reason why they don't do so is because indeed, it is really graphic. It is really violent. It's crude. It's, it's, it's just the way that it is. But I think when I look and I study the book, I realize it's got to be this way for at least one reason. Because the more and more I studied it, the more and more I read it, the more and more I reflected on it, just kind of dove deep. The thing that drives home the very main point of this book is the fact that it is indeed so graphic, violent, and crude, where you almost kind of cringe as you read it. Because truth be told, and you know this from watching movies, for those movie buffs out there, for people who read books, things of that nature, a hero always shines most in the most overwhelming and drastic circumstances, right? When they overcome the bleakest of outlooks, the more impressive the hero becomes, right? Like if their enemy is just like, whatever. No, 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 no. When, when the Avengers defeat Thanos, that's when you feel like they did something because that's like, that's the guy, right? 
Or a light. A light's luminescence is known best in the darkest of places. You put a light on in a very light place, nobody's impressed, but you put a light on in a completely pitch dark place, everyone's like, ooh, it's a light. The grace of God and his mercy, his patience, his love. You will really only know how ridiculous, how amazing, how just remarkable it is when you, when you just juxtapose it, when you put it up against a sin that is so great, gory, and grotesque. The greater the sin, the greater the grace needs to be. The worse and more just, just, just revolting and repugnant the sin is, the greater and more glorious and gracious the grace needs to be. And throughout the entire book, the thing that you feel is like, oh my goodness, how glorious God is and how amazing this grace actually is. Tim Keller, in a summary of the book, says basically this. He says, you see a God who is offering grace to those who do not deserve it, do not seek it, and do not appreciate it when they get it. You read the book, and you feel about Israel. Very choice things, very choice Korean words came to my mind that I cannot repeat here because they're not appropriate. But that's what you feel about Israel. You're just like, But again, and again, and again, 12 times over, God raises up judges. God rescues them, loves them, watches them turn their backs stupidly, and then rescues them, loves them 12 times over and over. Like, just being honest, it's actually laughable and comical just how ridiculously and unbelievably wretched, dull, stupid, and insanely forgetful Israel is. Like, it's, it's like, you're like, this can't be real. How can they be so like, talk about a box of rocks, right? Talk about like definitely not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Like, just, just, you just, like, like you're, you just can't, you can't fathom that they would do it again and again. Every time God hears their cry, he's moved to mercy and provides a judge. I'm going to be honest. As I was reading through the book and I read it through on Tuesday morning, after like, the first few judges, I was like, really, God? Like, for real? Again? And I realized the reason why I was annoyed was because I realized, wait, this is just going to keep happening all the way to the end of the book. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you get it after the third or fourth judge. Like, this is just a thing, and it's always going to keep going that way. And one, of, one part, I was just annoyed because I had to read the whole book. I was like, you know, I, I get the point. I, don't, I probably don't have to read the rest of it, but you just have to know you have to keep going. But more so, you realize it's just all really so heartbreaking. And then as I got to the end of the book, it dawned on me, and I thought, wait, why does God keep on keeping on? Why not just give up, God? I mean, after four, five, okay, if you're really nice and super, you know, forgiving, seven, eight, after a little while, you're like, Israel clearly is a lost cause. They ain't going to learn and it's not going to happen. And considering all that happened in Joshua and everything before, like you're like, no, they're not going to do it. And you go, why does God keep doing it? Why does God give grace to those who don't deserve it, those who don't seek it, and those who do not appreciate it, even when they get it? And the reason why is because God does not break covenants. This is crucial. If you remember how this whole thing started, and what keeps all this going is that God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the reason why they get the promise is because he made a promise to Israel. And throughout all these things, God continually makes new promises, new covenants, symbols to commemorate the covenants. Uh, the covenants excuse me. And though Israel struggles throughout and throughout and throughout, God affirms in chapter 2, 1 here, Judges, that he will not break his covenant. I mean, do you remember Joshua, the previous chapters, the very last one? God makes a covenant with Israel, though he knows. Even Joshua knows they're not going to keep it, but they still make a covenant. And true to form, Israel breaks it in very short order. Throughout the entire journey, whenever Israel breaks a covenant, God could have done the same, but he never does. You see, God's response to the breaking of the covenant by Israel is not that I'm going to forsake you. He says, no, I won't drive out your enemies anymore. They're going to be a thorn on your side. You're going to feel the weight of your sin. But nevertheless, I will never leave nor forsake you. I'm always your God. And hence, the judges keep on coming. But a little deeper, and then you realize kind of the crux of it all. And this is where kind of we're going to finish here. 
we, I think we have to realize, because I think we forget how odd all of this covenant making is between Yahweh and his people. See, this is not, well, I mean, I don't, I guess that maybe there isn't a modern or whatever, but this is the ancient, ancient times. And in these ancient times, gods simply do not, they, they, they didn't do what God does, what Yahweh does. Do you know that? Gods don't make covenants back in these days. How many of the mythical gods that you've learned about in school, how many of them actually make covenants like this? They just don't do it. The only one that does is Israel's God, Yahweh. And truthfully speaking, even if the ancient gods were to make a covenant, they certainly would not have kept it if the other people, if the regular humans broke their end. Because to do so, the ancient Near East, ancient religions, all those people would have believed that their God is weak. So whenever the people didn't do as the God wanted, he would punish them. To keep their end, even if they were to make a covenant, would be just plain stupid. See, gods in those days, they made demands. They would say, I am this God. I am the God of this. I am the God of this. Do this or else. If you do, then you will get whatever, right? I will give you the things that maybe you want. I won't kill you, basically, if you do what I tell you to do. But if you don't, ooh. But our God... Not just the God of thunder or the God of war or the God of water or the God of whatever. The God of the universe, Yahweh, the creator and maker of all things, this Jesus, our God, how is he? See, throughout the book, you get the sense that a king is indeed on his way. A king unlike any other king the world has ever known. A king of all kings. A true savior. One that would bring actual salvation to the world. Not just rescue. Not just a little bit of, uh, not just a little bit of reprieve. Not just a little bit of freedom. Complete and utter rescue and salvation to the world. You start to anticipate and get this feeling that maybe one day there would be a king that would put an end to all of it. That would not end with that. that a king that would not just die and his ways die because he dies. A king that would actually somehow make an impact that would last way longer than their actual life. And then the one that you get, and we all know this, we celebrated this a couple of weeks ago, is the one that, whose reign does not end with death, but the one who indeed lives on forever. Why? Because he is the risen king. The one who goes into death and comes out through life. The resurrected one. See, the book of Judges is a weird thing because you, in the entire book, you feel this angst. You feel like, my goodness, when is this going to end? Like, when is everything going to finally resolve? And in in the end, it doesn't actually resolve. Again, the book ends with, and in those days, there was no king and everyone did whatever they wanted to. And you're like, what, that's it? Like, what, what, what do you mean? And then you go to this book, Ruth, the side story, kind of the story within a story. And the reason why we're studying this, just as a little bit, a little bit of a preview, is because you see that even in a time like the judges, there were people, God's people, these three people, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, right? Kind of unknown and not really, you know, well, whatever, like these unexpected characters that actually live out God's way and you see God do amazing things to them. But throughout the entire thing, you anticipate that there's a king that is going to come because you know you need it. The book is so frustrating in one way because you know that this cannot just be the way that it ends. This book cannot be this way. The world we live in cannot be this way. Something's got to change. And the thing that you're impressed with is indeed there's a king that's coming. And the reason why we're studying Ruth is not just because those people in the book are amazing, but because you know Ruth is the grandmother of David and David is the great ancestor of the one, the king Jesus, and you see that God, even in the book of Judges, is making us yearn and ache and want for a king that would make the world a better place. The one that makes the gospel life actually true. We need this Jesus, don't we? In some way, our world is ever more pluralistic than ever before, even in our nation. I don't know if you know this, but, and this is not to get into politics, that's not the point, but 
As we try to deal with this pandemic and try to figure out the way out, right now it's a free-for-all. You know it. Everyone follows the rules as kind of as they wish. Even as the federal government is saying this thing, even within their own whatever, they can't seem to agree. But then the states are doing whatever it is that they feel like, and everyone's kind of all over the place. And the whole time, if we're just being honest, a lot of people are like, we need a better leader. The whole time, you wish the world would get together and kind of maybe just come together as one and kind of help the entire humanity, all of human race, right, to figure out how to defeat this thing. But we're all divided. We're all separate. Everyone's doing their one thing, their own thing. And all throughout, you realize the thing or the one, the, 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 the person that we need is someone greater than all of that. And that person is Jesus. And I think the reason why Ruth is there in some ways is to point you, even though a king for Israel is coming, that that's not the answer, but the one that is foreshadowed all throughout Ruth, Jesus, the one, he is the king. So church, I know it's difficult as, you, as we just kind of uh, about to go into a time of worship. Uh, I know these days have been difficult. I know... Um, Knowing what to do, knowing how to do, knowing when to go back to regular life, knowing all these things has been really, really difficult and challenging. But can I just invite you to pray? Maybe the thing that we're trying to learn and the thing that we need to learn as a church is not that all of this will go away and all this will make make better when we finally get a vaccine. Again, we talked about this before. But maybe the thing that the church needs to grasp and really hold on to is the fact that Jesus, his way is the way to go. Maybe we're being reminded strikingly how similar our world right now, especially in the midst of all of this, is like the world of the past. And shall we learn that what we need is the king, the one, Jesus. He's the only way. The way above all of the governments and the leaders and all those things, the way. And I pray that the church would take this opportunity that we have, one that is unprecedented in so many ways, to try to live this way out. I know that many of us are, this is week seven of this. Um, I know that many of us are, um, and again, Hannah, you can come up and we can get ready. But I know that many of us are, just be honest, sick. We're Zoomed out. We're quarantined out, all of these things, and we're wondering when things go back to normal. And I know that maybe we're thinking that the way back to normal is something different, but I hope and I pray that you would recognize that the way back to normal isn't actually some sort of new thing. It's just the way of Jesus. And so church, would you, would you pray this way? I invite you, before we sing, that God is the one throughout the history of the world who we've always needed and who we've always wanted and that we would then seek him and want him. So just I invite you just to pray a little bit. Um, and as we pray, um, then I'm going to pray for the offering as we customarily do and then we'll go into singing. But would you just, would you pray with me? As I was studying this book of Judges, would you pray with me that we would be the church that points to the king? That we would not do what Israel did, which is to turn their back on God, though he had done so many things. That we would teach the next generations on and on that indeed, that our God is good, that Jesus is king, and that we would proclaim him forever. So will you pray that? Will you pray that for yourself? That in this time we would cling ever more to Christ, that we, have a, that we have an opportunity to streamline and focus our lives to the one that really matters, that we would follow his way, the narrow way that leads to life, and that God would convict us, the Holy Spirit would move us so that we would follow him with everything that we have. So let's pray that church together and then I'm going to lead us through just one more prayer topic and then uh, we'll finish, pray for the offering and then finish the song. But would you just pray that with me?
And secondly, we just want to take some time to pray over our sins. Um, Again, Judges, Joshua, and all these books, they make it absolutely and abundantly clear that we need to deal with our sin. We need to we need to bring them before the Lord and we need to crucify them and we need to say, God, would you forgive us and would you grant in us peace and would you grant in us clarity? So would you take this time to pray for your own sin and the sins of the world? Um, bringing them all before God and saying, God, we need you. In a world that we live in where sin is so rampant, that we pray. And that's been humanity all throughout, but that we pray that God would deliver us from the slavery of sin. I was sharing this earlier, just prepping with the team, but um, just read Samson's story and you realize just how powerful sin can be. So will, you, will we pray against that? Pray against the sin of our lives so that we can turn, be freed from those chains and turn to follow Christ, to look upon him. So let's pray that. offering and just finish and then we'll rise and sing God we thank you Um, we thank you that you love us and that you're not swayed or moved or bothered by our lack of obedience our lack of allegiance our forgetfulness our sinfulness that though we turn so often, though we have difficulty remembering so often, though we forget so often, we thank you that you and your grace is so much greater. That you have promised that you would never break your covenant with us. That your promises are always true, that indeed your blood, your death, and your resurrection ensures that we will have life beyond this and even in this life now that we can have life that is different, that you have won and saved for us. So, Father, we pray. We thank you. Father, we pray for the offering that we give, that we do so because we're following your ways, that you tell us to do so, that we're recognizing that all that we have is really of you anyway from the jump. And so, Father, we pray that you would take this and do with it much greater than we could do on our own, that we'd be obedient and faithful to you, that you would indeed see that, Lord Father, that you would take that, you would receive that, and that you would do with it the glories that only you can think of. So, Father, we give this to you. And may you indeed be with all of us in these trying and difficult times, but may we see the opportunities that we have before us to steward this time for your glory and help us to do so in the littlest things to the biggest of things, from offering to prayer to worship to service, all these things. We pray that indeed you would unite the church, the body of Christ, to become one under the king, under the head, and that we would love you and serve you. We give you thanks and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, in your homes, I invite you to stand as we sing a song I think that you probably knew was coming, but King of Kings, and then just declaring the beauty of his name. So would you rise and sing with us?